You're listening to the Wilderness Warrior Podcast, forging dangerous men in wild places. Well, welcome to this episode of the Wilderness Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn, and I am joined by a very special guest. We have Mr. Matt Brewer with us today. Matt, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Matt, you do a couple things. You work in the healthcare industry. You're a gun writer. You're a fishing guide. You do guiding for wild edibles, which we'll talk about kind of all of those things in this show. You're a dad. You're a husband. Tell us just a little bit about, I, I want to hear about the wild edibles, first of all. How in the world did you get into guiding for wild edibles? So it's kind of an interesting story. So um, we live in kind of a unique area, northern Minnesota, and I know you're in Colorado, so you probably see some of these as well, but um, we have black morels, um, which the majority of the country doesn't even know about when they think of morels they think right. of elm trees and uh, you know the big bigfoot yellows and, and yellow and gray morels um but i have i don't know i've picked black morels since i was a kid and i had a guy contact me um and it's a guy who does like some youtube videos and he uh, he's actually evolved his business into now he does uh mushroom supplies or mushroom sales um and he what yeah he like uh they sell wild foraged uh, mushrooms to restaurants all over the country but uh he contacted wow. contacted me because he had never been picking black morels so he came up we shot a youtube video showed him where to find black morels and um kind of how they grow and where they grow and what they associate with and and in trade, he kind of taught me a little bit about a, a lot of other summer wild edibles. Um, and some I already knew about, but some he really refined everything. Uh, and then I was like, okay, if people actually want to get out and do this, maybe we should add this to our repertoire for the guide service. And it hit. That's crazy. It hit at like the best time because um, it's when like sustainability became this huge word and uh oh yeah and and it was like everybody wanted to do it so for the first four or five years we did it i was doing almost more mushroom guiding than i was fishing guiding which my backup guides Whoa. loved because they got to do all the all the fishing <laughs> trips but yeah it, it was really busy and and now um i i don't do it as much but we still get out enjoy it enjoy it as a family and i do um you know, I still do several trips a year, but nothing like uh, what it used to be. It was it was really crazy for a few years there. Yeah, it's incredible. And you mentioned one thing is the sustainability. That was part of the rise in the popularity of that. Um, I'm curious, why mushrooms, though? Like, what, what do you think it is that piques people's interest about that? Uh, some of it seemed like maybe the, like that. I knew a lot of guys who were big because of like the hipster movement. I don't know. I have no idea why. Um, but they really got into mushrooms. So I'm I'm curious, why are people into this? Why is it such a big deal? I I have a few theories, but I'll, I'll never really know. But yeah, <laughs> I, I had a lot of like, you know, younger, um, I guess, hipster um, 
for lack of a better term, you know, like couples that would come up and that's, they just wanted a weekend getaway up in the north and wanted to get out in the woods and pick mushrooms and take 8 million Instagram photos. And, you know, <laughs> it, that was one group. Yeah. And then you also had, you also had this, this group of people, um, that really love the outdoors and they love, I, I think deep down, if they searched their soul, they would, they would realize that they're a hunter. Um, yeah. but they're almost like against the killing or, um, eating of animals. So like mushroom hunting really fits for them because they're not going out and pursuing an animal and they're not killing an animal and there's no remorse there, but they still get the thrill of the hunt and then the harvest and, you know, and then being able to consume what you foraged. It's just like hunting. Uh, you're just doing it with a knife instead of a gun and there's no blood. Yeah, I think that's it. That's probably a huge thing. I think also kind of the, it feels good to get out in the wild and, you know, whether you're killing an animal, you know, you're harvesting something essentially. Uh, but sort of to be able to take care of yourself in wild places uh, is a big deal for people. I think it, it's a sense of, you know, it makes you feel more courageous, uh, you know, empowered, I guess, as an individual that you can at least get some of your own food, have to survive if you had to. It's interesting, though, yeah. to me, when I was in uh, the Czech Republic, uh, we were roe deer hunting. And these are these deer that are like the size of like a very small dog, you know. And um, I remember getting into the tree stand and the, the tree stands there are like, you know, not safety. They're not OSHA approved. Let's just say that. And we're getting up into these tree stands <laughs> and I get up there and in like broken English, the guide tells me, he's like, oh, yes, these... These deer are very small, and if you see people, do not shoot them. And I'm like, don't shoot people? What? Why, why do you have to tell me not to shoot people? Well, I, I came to find out there were so many people foraging for mushrooms in the woods that like the hunters and the mushroom foragers would kind of compete with each other. Um, so when we were over there, I asked the guy, I said, okay, show me, show me some of these mushrooms. I want to see them. And uh, this was like guide number two. And so he was a little familiar, you know, familiar with stuff, but not like super. So we, we come across this little patch of mushrooms. And I said to him, I said, can we eat these? And he goes, oh, yes, yes, this is fine. So I start picking them and he goes, oh, no, no, those kill you. I forget. <laughs> and I was like, uh, this could be this could be bad. So that, that kind of brings me yeah. to my next question for people who are. Uh, doing, you know, they're, they're, they're going after mushrooms, right? You get them. There's a real safety thing. Even with morels, I saw somebody, this was on Hank Shaw's Facebook page, uh, but somebody posted a picture, picture of morels and be like, I like eating these raw. Is that bad? So there's a lot, <laughs> yes. you have to know what you're doing, right? Both with finding yeah. what, what blend you're finding and then like how to prepare them. Yeah. People don't uh, understand that toxins, um, you know, toxins do exist in the ground. <laughs> um, right. And, you know, some toxins you need for a healthy, healthy ecosystem and mushrooms are like a sponge. So they soak these up in mass quantities. So, yeah, you need to boil them or, you know, figure out a way um, or cook them thoroughly to get rid of those toxins before you can consume. But people don't, not all people understand or know that. So. What 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 tips I guess would you give? First of all, let's talk about the black morels. Um, but tips for 
first of all, for finding them. Where are you typically looking? I mean, you don't have to give me GPS coordinates map, but like what, sure. what typical things do you look for? So black morels, um, and there's, I mean, the Morcella species just keeps evolving and they keep finding more and more different uh, species. But if you just break it down, you've got like yellow morels, black morels, burn morels. Uh, and I guess you could lump snowbanks in if you wanted to, but black morels, northern climates, um, you know, places like Canada, northern Minnesota, um, Colorado, I know, is a popular place for them, uh, northern Michigan, places like that. Um, and you're looking for like aspen. So if you want to convert it over to hunting, like if you know a spot that's really good for grouse and woodcock, more than likely black morels grow there. Um, because a lot of the places where I pl I pick black morels, um, I end up grouse hunting and woodcock hunting those spots in the fall. So interesting. It's yeah, it's kind of cool, but they're not related to elms at all. It's it's regrowth aspen. Um, clear cuts are a great disturbance, and mushrooms thrive on disturbance because mushrooms are gigantic. They look, they're under us at all times. Um, and the, the mushroom is actually the fruit. So if you think of it like an apple tree, an apple tree, 75% of the year is barren. And then all of a sudden the fruit comes and you harvest the fruit. Mushrooms are the same way, you know, during a certain time of year. If there's a disturbance or the conditions are proper or correct, then the mushroom will fruit, if you want to put it that way. But black morels specifically, um, aspen regrowth, um, things like diamond willow, large diamond willow sloughs, things like that. Um, but that is kind of the area for, for black morels anyway. And what is the time frame? Like when are, when are you typically going out to to find them? So like um, we have found them late April, but typically beginning of May and they run for about a month depending on the conditions. Um, but anywhere from the end of April to the end of May is, that's kind of your window. Um, I found them, I think the latest I've ever found them was like June 7th and found a few here and there, but um, the, the best of it is like mid-May. Interesting. So it's very interesting. I have to admit this live on air on the show. I was talking to Dan because our co-host Dan, he is like, I think he loves it more than elk hunting. He's crazy. And uh, like, <laughs> he's also from Wisconsin. So, you know, that says a lot. But Dan is into his morels. He loves his morels, right? <laughs> and I told him the other day, I was like, yeah, sure. I've, I mean, I've seen, I've seen him and just left him there. And I told him, but I've never actually eaten one. So for people who have never had them, particularly the blacks, what, what is so unique about this mushroom? Because I think for me, for the longest time, I just thought about like typical mushrooms my mom would serve and like a spaghetti sauce. I'm like, I hate those. So what's different about these? The difference between like a black morel and, and let's say a yellow morel, which is what 90% of people have eaten before, um, they taste almost exactly the same except a black morel is a little thinner. They don't grow as large. Um, so their cone isn't as thick and they, uh, they're not quite as meaty of a mushroom as, as the yellows. Um, but the kickback with it is you find them in much larger quantities. So like, uh, 
roughly uh, a pound of yellow morels is like 12 to 14 mushrooms, whereas a pound of black morels is like 33 to 35 mushrooms. Um, oh, and wow. you find them at about the same rate. Um, so you'll find, you know, I can go out and find a thousand black morels in a day. Um, whereas people hunting yellow is in the same amount of time might only find 110 or 70 or something, but we're going to come out with the same yield. Um, but due to the ground conditions, like up here, it's really loamy. Um, and there's almost no like sand and gravel where the black morels grow. So we don't have any of that sand. So you'll hear morel hunters talk a lot about like washing their mushrooms and you know, people get like use a brush, a light brush to, to get the sand and bugs out. We don't have to do that with black morels. You just throw them in the colander, rinse them off, throw them in the pan and eat them. So no sand at all. And I've wow. picked a lot of yellows over the years and they've all been sandy. It's like you eventually will bite into one that's gritty, um, but black morels, <laughs> you don't have that. But they taste, they taste identical. Um, and for people who've never, never had wild mushrooms, they don't taste anything like, um, you know, the portobello's out of a can or, um, or shiitake mushrooms you can go buy at the grocery store. Like it's a whole different experience and every mushroom is different. Like you can get lobster mushrooms, which have a hint of like, uh, almost like a seafood taste. Um, and you can get, uh, ericium or lion's mane that that tastes exactly like a scallop so i mean there's right. all these different flavors and varieties but everybody thinks about yeah a portobello or you know whatever was in mom's spaghetti sauce like those are disgusting and i agree because i've been spoiled <laughs> by good mushrooms that's awesome so matt i want to ask you too in terms of preparation um how would you say for the blacks especially how would you prepare them you you've picked them you found them now you're going to eat them what's the best way to do that i just do a simple like butter fry with garlic uh, just a hint of garlic fry them in butter and then um, a lot of times they don't even make it onto a plate um, you know they start to cool off and my kids are picking them out of the pan and i'm picking them out of the pan but uh, uh morels go really well with steak like uh, any any thicker cut of red meat um, is complemented very nicely by morels so things like burgers throw them on a burger or you know put it on an elk steak or venison steak oh. that is really really good and then you can you can add you know like cream and make sauces so you can turn it into like a you know a sauce that you pour over a steak and it's it's really good oh man that sounds amazing so i gotta ask you if you're gonna cook a steak wild game steak Mm -hmm. What and you're gonna pair it with a a black morel, mm -hmm. like your primo, absolute favorite. What's the cut and how would you how how do you go about preparing it? Oh, if you would ask me this like uh, a few months ago, I would have answered completely differently. But uh, really, I've, lately, yeah. But lately, I and this is shameful. But lately, I've been on this beef New York strip. Like that's my my terrible little secret is i'll like sneak away to the butcher um we have a butcher in town and they they literally have like the cows are taken down and that same day you can buy the cut 
And I, I've always been one, like I never buy beef ever. Like I don't remember the last time I bought a pound of hamburger, but yeah, beef New York strip lately has been my guilty pleasure. But, but if you had asked me like, you know, six months ago, I would have told you probably like uh, a bear neck roast. Um, oh, really? Would go really good with some morels. Yeah, well, we eat a lot of bear, um, and it's pretty seasonal. I mean, we don't uh, don't get to shoot them all year round, and it's not like we can pile up four or five of them and keep them in the freezer. So, I really like right. uh, a bear neck roast, or or I mean, some venison backstraps or um, something like that works really well. Um, but I I admitted it here first that <laughs> beef New York strip has been. <laughs> That's been something that's been getting me lately. So that's awesome. So I want to ask you before we leave the topic of mushrooms, um, if somebody's in your area, uh, you're in, uh, up in Minnesota, they want to go up there and they want to do some mushroom hunting, where can they, what's the best place to, to reach you, reach out to you and get more information? Well, if anyone is up in Northern Minnesota and they search for guides, more than likely they're going to find us. <laughs> um, but North Country Guide Service, uh, you can find us on all the social media. Um, we run number one on on Google for guide services in this area. So, um, but North Country Guide Service is the business, and uh, we're always happy to take families out or people out mushroom picking. It's it's really cool and and it's super inexpensive compared to our other guiding. You know, uh, we don't charge for kids, and a lot of times we'll have a husband and wife and three kids and on a fishing trip that would cost you, you know, buco bucks and a mushroom hunting trip. It doesn't cost you much more than uh, what it costs me to pay for the gas and bug spray. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's a really, it, Dan got me into it. You're talking about it. I feel like my life is incomplete without having eaten at least one <laughs> black morel. So I'm going to have to get into it. I can ship you some. Oh, what? Yeah. We dehydrate them. So I've got, I've got a bunch in the cupboard. So. Oh, dude, you just became my new best friend. Dan, don't <laughs> tell Dan, but you got the morels. I, I, he would understand. He would understand, actually. That's awesome. So I want to ask you, too, about some of the other stuff. Number one, bear hunting. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it, I would say bear hunting, like in Colorado where I'm at, we, we bear hunt for sure. But we don't know how to obsess over it like a good Minnesotan, right? <laughs> and it's a little different because all of our stuff is fall. There is no spring bear hunt and all of it is spot and stock. So, you know, some years you may see nothing. Some years you may get lucky. A lot of guys just buy the bear tag. You know, they get an elk tag and you buy a bear tag basically in case you see something. And, and some years you do, depending how, you know, mm -hmm. how willing to beat feet you are. So I want you to tell me about Minnesota bear hunting. There are a lot of people up there who just love it. Like that's their thing. And so I want to know why. What's so what's so special about Minnesota bear hunting? I am not sure. I have for for me, I can tell my own personal story. Like um I grew up like in the heart of bear country in Minnesota. So um seeing bears was something cool and like uh, you know, it's not something people get to see every day. Um or even right. some people in their entire lifetime. So we'd have relatives we'd we'd have relatives like drive up and they're like show me a moose and show me a bear and we'd take them driving around and then we would maybe go visit 
um, an oat field at a farm house or uh, we had a bear camp and we could go up there and regular see, regularly see bears. So, um, you know, people drive like eight, 10 hours, just come up and hang out with my folks and have my folks show them around and show them a bear and a moose. Um, so for me, I, I've always been around it and it's always been something that I was kind of obsessed over. Um, my dad guided for bears and then I took over and added that into my fishing guide business and then kept expanding from there. But, um, and the fact you only get like here, uh, where I live, you only get drawn for a bear tag every maybe four to five years. So it's something you think about every year and then it just becomes like stronger and stronger and stronger. And maybe that's the appeal for a lot of people is like, oh, I didn't get to bear hunt this year. And then they start thinking about it. And then the next year, oh, I didn't get to hunt them again. And by the time they get their tag, they're craving it so much that it's like a drug. Yeah, that makes total sense. I didn't realize that you guys couldn't hunt bear every year. I just assumed the way that people talked about it that uh, that was an every year deal. So there are a couple sections in Minnesota where you can buy tags over the counter, um, but it's very difficult. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. It, it's, you know, you, like we guided in those areas for a few years. Um, when my dad was healthy, I had him running trips um, in that area where you could just buy a tag over the counter and uh, success rate was around maybe 30%, 40%, whereas I'm running 100% success rate in my zone. Um, what for opportunity uh we we were 100 percent success rate on uh on shot opportunity up until two years ago and then uh last year we actually had to bring a hunter back and it was a i think that was only the second time we've ever had to do that so that they could get on a bear but last year was pretty tough but that that tells you the difference on how hard it is to shoot a bear in those no quota zones where you can buy over the counter but it's something Minnesota really needs to assess because there's a lot more bears than, um, than there are tags. So, um, you know, if I'm running 20 baits, I could have 70 to 80 bears, um, that what? we might, different bears that we might encounter over the course of the year. Cause we bait Minnesota chose the baiting route and we only do fall as well. There's no spring hunt here. Um, okay. So yeah, we, we might encounter that many bears and I've got, you know, six hunters. So that's six tags uh, out of that many bears. It's, uh, there's a lot more out there than people realize. So. Oh, for sure. So I want to ask you too, this, this always becomes a, a big debate. Uh, back when I was working at Peterson's hunting, that was like, I remember we, we ran an article. It was like a versus maybe Joseph von Benedict wrote it. I can't remember, but it was over like bear baiting versus spot and stock. And I remember it was like, if you advocated either position, somebody on the other side was like, you slapped their, their baby child in the face. You know, they were just so offended that yeah. anybody could have a difference of opinion. Um, I want to give my take and then I want to get yours. So I <laughs> think they're both good and fun and can be ethical and, and just different hunts is the way I would describe it. They're just different, right? Um, I've done like Northern Alberta, like baited bear hunts. And what I would say is the reason those hunts are so fun is because you get to see like, I don't know. I mean, in like four or five days of hunting, you know, you might see like 50 bears. And so it's really a fun experience just to sit there and, and really mostly what you do is watch bears. And that's something that like, 
when I've done spot and stock, like you're not going to see 50 bears. You might not see two bears, um, depending on the area you're from and, and, and whatever other, the, you know, the environmental factors are. So I don't have an ethical problem with it. I've done it in Wyoming. I've done it in Canada. I absolutely love it. Um, but what I think a lot of times happens is like guys have never, they've just never done it. And so they think that it's this bad thing. So my question for you is, first of all, where do you come down on that issue? And what would you tell somebody who's, who's never baited and thinks it's this horrible practice? Well, we get in this debate a lot with people who hunt with dogs. Um, yeah. So that's an added, same, same you know, type of deal. It's a three-way debate. Yeah. Um, and I, I've always been one. I don't try to take a stance on anything because like, if I say, Oh, hunting bears with dogs is unfair. Then, then that takes away from the bobcat I have mounted downstairs because I shot that over dogs. Like, um, so whatever way you want to hunt them, I think is totally fair. And I've never hunted them behind dogs, but I have done spot and stock and I have done a lot of baiting. Um, and I prefer the baiting because, and maybe it's the guide in me. I, I really like the chess game. Like, yeah, I like being able to find the bear. You know, I, I need to put a bait in their kitchen somewhere in their household for them to start feeding on it. Uh, otherwise I probably won't be successful because bears that roam into a bait from a long distance, they're unpredictable and they can move. So you know, finding that 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 special station and that area where the bears are, and then getting them to come into the bait, and then getting them patterned so that a client is going to be successful and see them during the day because they're such a nocturnal animal. Um, you know, that's right. all a chess game to me. So I I prefer that. Um, spot and stock is cool. Um, it's like you said, it's so hard. Like the most successful spot and stocks we've had were when a farmer called and said, Hey, there's a bear in my corn. It needs to go. So we know there's a bear yeah. there, you know? Um, yeah. But if, if you just went out and tried to shoot a bear in Minnesota without baiting or, you know, you just sat on the stand or something, you're not going to kill a bear more than likely. You, you could go five, six years and you'd never see right. it. Yeah. So there's a couple things there. Number one is, um, you know, this is true in Colorado as well. We're not allowed to bait a course, but we have, essentially we have in certain areas we have a bear problem there's no spring hunt just fall hunting it's very hard even spot and stock to kill a bear and so you know like we're we're outnumbered in many places in the west uh too many bears and it's interesting because like Mm -hmm. uh, cpw you know colorado parks and wildlife they will move bears like from aspen to you know by steamboat craig meeker they'll move them there because you know the the rich people are tired of having bears in town in Aspen, but then what happens is they have to pay the ranchers because the bears have killed their livestock and there's a bear problem and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we've always said, it's like, well, why don't you just have a spring season? Well, because the majority of people who vote, just like we had this wolf issue, there's reintroducing wolves officially into Colorado. And the whole reason is because people in Denver and Boulder are allowed to vote. And they'd see, you know, wolf calendars and they say, well, this is great. We, you know, wolves are just these magical, mystical creatures. I saw a Disney movie about it. They're great. Um, Not realizing, like, they don't have to, my point is they don't have to live with the consequences of the reintroduction most of the time. So 
that's one thing. It's like mm-hmm. it's just population control and wise management, and your odds go way up when you've obviously when you're baiting. But the other thing about it that I've noticed is I have I've not done it, but I've had a couple of really close encounters. One time we were actually elk hunting, but my buddy had a muzzleloader bear tag. And he's calling, and we hear what I thought was elk coming through the trees. And um, my buddy's, you know, he's calling, and I'm in front of him, just like you would call, you know, calling an elk, shoot it, whatever, maybe 30 yards or something. And I start backing up toward him, and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm looking out, because I'm trying to see what's coming, and I had a funny feeling about it. Sure. And uh, he sees me set my bow down and reach for my, my 40 cal pist- pistol. And he's like, what are you doing? Well, this sow comes running like full speed at us. I mean, she was booking it. You know, these bears can move really fast. Yeah. And I'm trying to stop her and she keeps running. And she gets to maybe 10 yards and finally sits up on her haunches. And I see my buddy like right next to me. He's, he's lining up his muzzleloader to shoot. And just before he pulls the trigger, two cubs come running. Uh, and this was scary, too. They run right past us, and they tree right above us. And I was like, dude, we need oh, to get out of here, like, right okay. now. This is not good. This is not yeah. good. So yeah. we back out. She takes off. Cubs take off. We're, we're totally good. You know, we're not a newspaper article. We didn't die or get maimed. But it really made me think the beauty of baiting is that I can sit there and generally I can watch. You know, if a sow comes in, I have time to wait. I don't have to generally shoot right away. I can wait and see, does she have cubs? Does she have not? So that's part of the management uh, thing about it as well. But it's also interesting, once you've done it, once you've gotten the taste for doing that, you realize, as you said, there's a lot of actually strategy involved. So... For guys in Idaho, guys in Minnesota, guys in Wyoming who can bait, I want to ask you, what are you, what's your strategy? Like, what are you looking for when you say, okay, I think this is a good spot uh, to put a bait? What, what's going through your mind? Uh, well, part of that for me is cheating. I mean, I, I've been baiting the same areas for so long and <laughs> yeah. I'm in the woods more, more than most people. So, you know, I right. see bear scat all spring when I'm mushroom picking, all summer when I'm mushroom picking, and then um, you know, I, I know where bears are, but, uh, in general, you're looking for just like with, uh, with most other things, uh, in nature, you're looking for water and, and cover and, um, up here with bears, especially with Minnesota summers and, uh, and falls being so warm, you want not just water, but like a cooling source. So like, you know, that feeling when you're walking in the woods and you might come to like a, a a boggy area and you feel the temperature drop like eight degrees and you're like, Ooh, you know, yep. you, you can just tell it's cooler there. That's where a bear probably is going to be. <laughs> like there's probably going to be a bear in that area, especially, um, you know, if you're in one of those like marshy boggy areas with dry land adjacent and water nearby as well. Um, and then food source too, obviously. Um, up here acorns so red oak and we don't have a lot of white oak here but like red oak and scrub oak um if you can combine all those things like a cooling area water good cover like thick dense cover um with oaks nearby like within a mile or two uh, an area like that is gonna 
probably provide you with some bear activity. Yeah, that's awesome. Really, really good stuff. Um, I want to ask you too, Matt, what, what is it like in terms of non-resident? How hard, expensive uh, is it generally to get a, a bear tag? It's just as easy to get a tag as a non-resident. Um, they're put into the same lottery. So it's no harder if you're a non-resident, but it's substantially more expensive. I mean, I think it's uh, 240 for an out-of-state tag, which, I mean, Minnesota's out-of-state licenses are really cheap <laughs> compared to, I mean, I pay that for turkeys in other states. Um, so many, yeah. but our, our resident tag is like 42, 42 bucks. So it's, it's a substantial difference, but it's, um, if you want to hunt, another state and you don't live in minnesota you should come here and hunt because it's super cheap everything is really really inexpensive um, when it comes to non-residents so and bear is like one of our most expensive so that's not not bad at all interesting yeah and i mean for for guys like colorado wyoming um you know i hunt other states all the time idaho wyoming you know and it's funny like especially elk tags i mean out of state colorado elk tags seven hundred dollars so people around here, like you say, like you said, like 240 and I'm like, oh, it's nothing. 240 Because right. in comparison, uh, it's, it's actually fairly cheap. I think Idaho's bear tag, depending on unit, is 170 or something like that. So really, it's not too bad. And I think probably if you're doing the baiting, like with, with something with you, um, it sounds like your odds are actually pretty good if somebody wants to do that. Like your odds of going on a guided hunt with you guys and, and getting put on a on a bait you have pretty high odds right yeah you're especially if you're going with a guide your chances are pretty good like uh, between me my wife and my apprentice we're running baits and the main things are like consistency and and who has the best bait so if somebody's baiting near me i want to make sure that i'm consistent so the bears get on a routine and i want to make sure i have the best bait so that i tear away from anybody else who's feeding and when you're talking about, you know, over 30 years experience, um, we know what the bears like and what they don't like. And we don't just grab, like, I don't just run to my aunt's house and grab whatever scrap she has and throw them out there. Like I'm very particular about what we feed our bears and what we put in our bait stations. So, so yeah, your odds are, are really good with it that way. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely way easier than trying to do it yourself. Um, and, Baiting is way yeah, easier than sure. trying to do it any other way, I think. Right. One of the things I was going to ask you too, Matt, is uh, when I went to Alberta, uh, this experience is really weird because, number one, you have to really watch bears climbing up in your tree stand. Um, they, <laughs> yeah. they do it all the time. and <clears throat> So the guides give you this whole you know spiel about you know what to do. And I was with uh, a, a gal from the NRA. And we were there, and she wrote about it, actually, Rose, in American Hunter. And she actually, we, she, we get back to camp, and she's telling the bear guide, like, yeah, that bear came up in the tree. I just kicked it in the face. And we were like, you what? And she's <laughs> like, well, yeah. And he was like, no, you shoot that bear. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> crazy. But, not, you know, for a lot of us, we're not used to um, the amount of... They were just super comfortable with people. Part of that was their their baiting schedule. Um, as you mentioned, like the minute you dumped bait, they would actually wheel you into the stand. They would dump bait, hang a, hang a rotting beaver. And then like the minute they did that, you would get in the stand and bears would be on top of you. 
I mean, they yeah. heard the dinner bell. Basically, the four wheeler was the dinner bell. I, I, have, do you guys no. see it to that level? Not to that level. Um, you know, Canadian bear hunts are, are we're like the baby Canada, um, and and that goes <laughs> yeah. for all things like walleye fishing. Walleye fishing too. We're like probably the best state in the United States for walleye fishing. But you drive two hours north of me, I'm going to Canada, and it's like a whole different, you're in a whole different world. Like, while I just jump into the right. boat, it's ridiculous. And it's the same with, same with bear. Like, we have a lot of bears around here, and bear hunting is really good around here. But you just cross the border into Ontario, and you're in bear heaven. It gets crazy. You have 15, 20 bears a night walking to your bait station. So That's crazy. I, I wonder, Matt, you know, I talked to a lot of guides in, Canada this year, up in the Yukon, stuff like that. Uh, it was a horrible year for them, obviously, because uh, their country is shut down and uh, nobody nobody can come. Most of their clientele is they're Americans. Um, so you close a border, you close the hunting. It, it really affects their business. Did you see any uptick in local business because of that? Yeah, some. I mean, Minnesota had kind of a unique thing with, uh, with COVID and everything. Um, there were record fishing license sales. Um, so more people bought fishing licenses uh, in Minnesota, I believe between, well, last year, cause we're in the new, the new year for licenses. Um, and more people, I think bought small game licenses last year as well. So there was definitely an uptick, uptick and all that stuff. And like mushroom picking too. <laughs> Part of the reason we don't guide as much for mushrooms anymore is because so many people it's become so popular and so many people have learned how to do it on their own now. Um, yeah, especially a lot of people we've guided. Um, but I'd go out mushroom picking this, this past summer, you know, you got to get out of the house. So I'm going mushroom picking and, uh, and I'd run into people and it's like, wait, I've never, ever seen another person in July in these woods. Like, I didn't think people dared come into the woods in July because of horse flies and mosquitoes, but, um, but I saw more mushroom pickers and just walkers, people just enjoying the trail systems. We've got thousands of miles of trails around here and I, I would be like four miles back on a trail and I'd run into just an older couple that's just walking and I'm like, how did you get here? <laughs> I drove back here. How did you, how did you get here? Like, oh, we just live a mile from the entrance. We walk down and, you know, so I, I think just outdoor recreation in general is, um, and this was a really good year for it. Yeah. It's interesting too, because, um, you know, a lot of people, when you first think of Minnesota, you, you're obviously going to think of the, the nasty winters. Um, but in many ways, wh one of the things that's always struck me is Minnesota really is like a hunt, hunting and fishing, just Mecca, right? There's so many things to do mm -hmm. year round. And even in the wintertime, right, you can you can have some fun, you know, ice fishing and doing some other stuff, snowmobiling, that sort of deal. But I mean, it seems like if you mm -hmm. love the outdoors, it's a great state, right? Yeah, I was going to ask you, the, the other side of it is the fishing, right, which uh, you guide for. Uh, so talk just a little bit about the fishing opportunities in Minnesota. And then what, do, do you specialize in anything in particular? You mentioned walleye. Um, what do you tend to do the most of? Walleye is, I mean, it's our state fish and it's the most popular and we're in a really good area for it. Um, so obviously walleyes are our main focus and I would say that's probably my specialty. Um, 
and that just comes from 18 years of just non-stop walleye fishing. <laughs> um, but in the winter, people tend to kind of forget about walleyes and they start to chase panfish a little more and they'll chase perch and all these oddities like eelpout and tulabies and um, some of these one-off fish that don't, that don't get any respect in the summer. But in the winter, people are like, we're fishing for those. Um, but, you know, we get family trips for panfish. We get hardcore musky fishermen because we're a really big area for muskies. Um, we have like three of the best musky lakes in the state all within 20 minutes of, of my door. Um, so oh, there's really? some really good mus musky fishing opportunities, large northern pike. Um, that we have pretty much everything. There's trout streams, designated trout lakes. Um, if it swims, basically, you can fish for it in Minnesota. I mean, and if it's not inland, you can just drive over to Lake Superior and um, catch all your offshore stuff like salmon and stuff there. So you, Minnesota does realistically, it offers pretty much everything. It's hard for me to, like, wax too high on minnesota right now because we the weather's nice now but we just came off like i don't think it went above zero in february it was oh. like a month of month of like voluntary lockdown during a month of mandatory lockdown so you were twice as crazy <laughs> yeah um, yeah it was like yeah. 20 20 30 40 below every day so it there oh. there is that punishment portion of it but Today it's like almost 50 degrees and spring is coming. Turkeys are gobbling. I got grouse in the crab apple trees. My dog is laying in the driveway. It's it's getting to be good now. Yeah, that's crazy. How do you, I've asked like every Minnesotan I've ever met, I've asked this question, like how do you make it through that winter? What what do you do? Well, I'm I'm guiding. So like it doesn't slow down for me. It's actually busier during the colder times. So during the stretch of, you know, 30, 40 below, nobody wants to go out and fish on their own. And I rent fish houses that are sunny and 70 oh, all day long. Okay. So everybody's like, I'm not, I'm not, I want to go fishing really bad today, but I'm not going out and setting up my portable and freezing my butt off. So I'll just call Matt and we'll rent a fish house for the day. So when it's cold, we're twice as busy because everybody wants to be in wow. these houses. And uh, so it doesn't really slow down for me. So I don't know what other people do. But uh, I work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good way to. Uh, that's a good way to fight off boredom, right? Just, just stay busy and keep working. That seems like the big deal, though. Ice fishing. I know in uh, Colorado, it's yeah. very similar. A lot of the guys, surprisingly, who are you know, okay, there's guys who go hunting once a week during the fall, and then there's you know me and my buddies, and we're like. So somebody asked me that this year, archery season happened for elk and I didn't kill anything. And they're like, well, there's always next year. And I was like, bro, there's like next week. What are you talking about? We're, uh, yeah, we're hitting it right. hard for a long time, but it seems like a lot of those guys, we just have to find something to do. So guys are fishing ice, ice fishing tournaments and going after lake trout and stuff like that. So it seems like mm -hmm. it's a good, that's like the chosen sportsman way to like, at least you know, fight off a little bit of boredom, get outdoors in the wintertime. So are you guys actually guiding for ice fishing or is it just, just operating the houses? No, we, we take private guided trips on snowmobile um, or truck if we can, um, setting up portable fish houses, you know, bringing people to really good bites. Um, so we're doing the private guiding and the fish house rentals. Um, 
So it, yeah, it stays plenty busy and I turn away trips like every day just because you can't, you can't do it every day uh, in this cold. Um, right. Like people, people don't understand that if I tell them, Oh, I guided today, I can't guide you tomorrow. And it's like 27 below that day. I'm like, well, isn't everything already loaded? It should be easy to guide tomorrow. And I'm like, yeah, but I need to take it out and thaw it out so that I can, it'll operate <laughs> yeah. the following day. Uh, stuff breaks when it's cold, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's plenty busy and, and we offer both. And, and then we have people that just want to sit down at a bar and buy a spot. <laughs> like, you know, they're like, I'm coming <laughs> yeah. from Iowa and I want to fish for the the day, but I don't want to hire a guide. And, you know, can I buy you a beer and, and you give us some fishing spots. So we have that clientele as well. And I don't drink and I like money, so it's hard for me to do those, but, <laughs> but they, you know, we get those as well. And sometimes those are easier than actually guiding. So, yeah, that's funny. So Matt, I want to ask you in terms of pricing on your guiding services, just kind of ballpark from anything from like black bear to a day fishing on the lake. What's kind of the ballpark on what stuff runs? So like start to finish, I mean, bear hunting is a little unique because, you know, I, I can tell you the cost of a bear hunt, but you have all these optional things like, you know, caping and, and you know, what do you want done with the skull? Yeah. And there's all these, uh, you know, if if I'm going to skin your bear, or drag your bear, uh, but base price is 1200 bucks for a bear hunt. So it's not terrible. And then like a day of mushroom picking is going to cost you probably 250 bucks. Um, most 350 um our fishing starts at 350 and goes up from there uh, 350 is like if three guys want to come up and fish for four hours for walleyes you're paying 350 bucks and that's your total cost for the entire boat um you can rent a fish house from us for like 400 bucks for the entire weekend and they sleep four so you know it's cheap <laughs> so none of it's yeah it, you know, it, it's all relative, I guess, but none of it's that outrageous. I mean, I've, I always no. compare what I pay for guides in other states and, and I always think to myself, I'm crazy. I'm not making any money because, you know, <laughs> let's say I go hunt turkeys in Florida and I pay three grand uh, to go turkey hunting in Florida. And then I come back and somebody, we can't guide for turkeys in Minnesota, but if I did, it'd be 350 or 400 bucks. And it's like, you know, everything's cheaper here. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was one of the things I learned just industry trips, like hunting around the, uh, around the world was, you know, you, you list those prices and it's like, that's, that's pretty affordable for most, you know, just working class guys. Whereas like, I don't know, I'm thinking of like going on a, a mountain goat hunt that's 10 grand and thinking, wow, that's expensive. And we were there with a guy who was bighorn mm -hmm. sheep hunting at $45,000. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. finishing my sheep slam. You know, he had spent a couple hundred grand on that. So, and then you're talking like elk hunts right. in Colorado can be ten, fifteen thousand dollars um, $15,000. Just depend, you know, trophy is going to be more. So, yeah, 1200 mm -hmm. bucks on a bear really isn't, it really isn't bad at all. And most people walk out of here, they end up paying around two grand by the time, you know, if they want their meat and they want their cape and they want the skull and you know, they want us to, if they want to show up and just have everything done for them, you're walking out of here about two grand and, and you don't have to do anything. You don't touch your meat until it hits your plate. I mean, 
it's, it's all inclusive. So it's pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to ask you on the, the fishing side. Okay, so maybe hunting too. Species. If you go by species, what's the largest of each that you've had somebody, like when you're guiding, you've had somebody kill a bear, catch fish, et cetera. So let's start with black bear. What, what's the biggest that you guys have, have got? We had a, had a 535 under my guide service. My, my dad, they, sh- they shot bigger. But 535 was, was the largest since I've taken over the bear side of things. That was a, That's a that whopper a of a bear. Three years, three years ago. Yeah, it was a really big boar. Um, I think, I actually think he shot, I think he had the largest skull in Minnesota that year. Or he was like top five what? or something. Um, but yeah, he, he got an award from, some award from the state for having one of the largest bears. Um, he had sent it into Boone and Crockett or I can't remember what exactly what it was. But yeah, it was one of the largest ones in the state that year. And we don't see a lot of those. I mean, most of the bears that come out of our operation are, you know, 160 to 260 pounds, um, which are right. nice bears. Uh, but, and we have an, an occasional like nine, 95 or 115, but 535 is our biggest bear. Was that bear just doing steroids or what? He looked like it, man. That bear was, it, it wasn't just this huge belly. I mean, it was just massive. Yeah. Like he looked like he'd just destroy you. He was all muscle. Like I was getting pictures Dude. of him on the camera and I'm like, that bear is cut. Like <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Well, it's funny. Cause when we were in Canada, I think uh, you could shoot two bears in Alberta and, uh, I shot a six foot five bear nose to tail. That's what they measure them. And mm-hmm. then the big bear I shot was seven foot six. People were like, "How ju- bears are hard to judge, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, the small ones are hard to judge. And then that dude comes in and it was just like, he looked, I don't know how to describe it. He looked like a linebacker and he had no, ne- you know, like no, like yeah. thin pencil neck. It was just like his shoulders went straight to the side of his head and this huge block head. And I was like, I mean, it took me literally like two seconds to judge this bear and be like, oh, <laughs> yeah, he's going to yeah. die. And sure enough, yeah. like he was so big, dude. Like we normally we load him on the four wheelers, you know, but me and Corey, yeah. the guide, we're like, Corey's like, dude, we can't get this bear on this four wheeler. And Corey's a big fella himself. So finally Corey just like, I mean, he used every bit of his strength to kind of roll it up the wheel well and like onto the back. But that sucker was huge. So I'm imagining, like, I don't, I don't know that that bear was 535 though. I mean. 535 is just a fat toad, right? That is a, that's a pig of a bear. Yeah. The guy who shot it, he's like, if I had to guess, he's, he's around my size and I'm like 6'2", 190. Um, so if you imagine like a tall, slender guy, I, I don't have a lot of muscle on him, <laughs> but uh, he's holding that bear and the head of the, of that boar is like in his lap and the head is like the same size as his lower torso. So like what? Imagine yeah, imagine like a six two one ninety guy and just take like Dude. his belly abdomen area and that whole section of his torso and that's how big that bear's head looked. It was gigantic. Yeah, if you dude, if you have photos, send them to me. We'll we'll share them on uh, Facebook. Uh, I'm sure people would Yeah would love to see that that giant bear. So yeah. bear, that's bear. 
Okay, so now let's move to fish. Yeah. What 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 are the biggest by species? So oddly enough, we had talked off air a little bit about uh, an industry friend, uh, Jared Hinton. He he uh, bought yeah. a guide trip for his dad and uncle. And his uncle actually caught the largest walleye that's ever been caught with our guide service. And that was like a... What? We, we didn't weigh it, but it was like 32 and a quarter inches. So, and it was during the spawn. So I'm guessing that fish was like, I don't know, 13 pounds, maybe 12 and a half, 13 pounds. We never, we never Fatty. waited. We just took a lot of pictures and released it. But yeah, his, Fatty. well, they call him Uncle John. Yeah, he... He actually caught the biggest one with us. Um, pan, I mean, if, if you went through everything, we've caught some really big panfish. Um, you know, some that were like close to state record size. Um, sturgeon. Um, I, I think Jared caught the largest sturgeon. Uh, him and his wife were up with us. So his family has a little bit of luck. Um, yeah, that was like. Yeah, I want to go fishing with Jared. Next time I go, I'm taking him. Yeah. Uh, but he caught a sturgeon that was like, I think it was estimated at like 105 or 110 pounds or something. I don't know. We we had a 50, 52-inch muskie that was caught guy, by a guy from Wisconsin. And by muskie standard, standards, 50 is like the trophy benchmark. But um, but people catch like 54s, 55s around here all the time. So a 52 isn't that ridiculous, but it's, I mean, it's a really big fish. Um Yeah. And we've had, I don't know, like a 40, 44, 45 inch northern, um, you know, which puts you right in that 22 to 23 pound range. So, yeah, some nice stuff with us. Um, we guide for for deer as well. And the largest buck didn't come from a client. Um, my wife has shot two identical giant deer right here out my back window um, in our back pasture. She hunts the farm here and she kills big deer and then I get stuck sh shooting like yearlings and four corns and stuff um, so that she can demasculine me every chance she gets by pointing <laughs> up at the wall. So That's awesome. How big are those deer? Um, they're only, I think like one, 131 or something was the bigger of the two, but they're okay. almost identical. So they're not giants, but Minnesota, you know, you, you get those large freaks that show up every once in a while, but, uh, but otherwise Minnesota deer, you're looking at body size. Um, and that's, that's where yeah. we kind of excel, I guess, you know, you get some uh, 220, 230 pound bucks and that's a, that's a big deer. Yeah. That was sort of something I noticed, uh, not last year, but I think the year before I was in Saskatchewan hunting whitetail and I mean, they had some nice nice horn on them but especially the bodies i just and the first deer that came into the setup there i was like oh my gosh these things are huge and most of the deer guys are killing her yeah definitely over yeah. 200 pounds just huge monster body deer mm -hmm. yeah and it, it's always funny to me because like um my brother-in-law he hunts in texas every year and you know he'll send me a picture and i'm like geez and what that what that deer score and he's like oh well, the, it was only 148 pounds and, you know, it's like 135, <laughs> 140 inch, you know, eight pointer. And I'm like, it looks gigantic, but it's, it's like holding fish, you know, hold the fish a certain way and makes them look bigger. 
And uh, oh yeah, it's, it's the same thing with with deer, I guess, down in Texas. They all look gigantic. Oh yeah, because they have the body size of a small dog. You know, it's like a, a German Shepherd sized deer with their you know one twenty five rack looks enormous on them. You know, some pretty amazing fish, deer, bear. You guys have kind of done it all. Is there any like on the mushroom side? Are you just looking at what what would be like? Is it the number that you haul in? Is that what would be like impressive to people? Oh yeah. So so what's what's on the the high end on that? I mean, any anytime like with morels, anytime you push over a thousand in a day is it's pretty monumental. You know, it's something you can brag about. Like, yeah, we picked fourteen hundred today. You know, and people are like, whoa, we found seven. You know, a pretty that that's what you go by, I guess. <laughs> um. Or you, or you start to talk in pounds, you know, we picked 35 pounds today and, um, but we, we usually start diving into numbers, especially if we weigh something and we see how many pounds it is like, wonder how many mushrooms we bent down and picked today. Yeah. That's the other part about it. It's a lot of work, right? You're, you're, uh, definitely using like, uh, you know, I always think of, uh, when we're out uh, working in the garden or stuff like that, I don't know if it's just my white man body's not used to it, but like bending over for like an hour straight, like picking cabbage, I'm like, I think I'm going to die. I think I might actually die right now. Yeah. And I, I don't think I would have had the same problem 10 years ago, but I definitely, uh, I definitely feel 40 if I work in the garden or I go mushroom picking. It's not like uh, I'm real nimble anymore. In shape isn't how I would categorize <laughs> yeah, exactly. myself anymore. Well, that's awesome, Matt. I really appreciate you coming on the show. As we close, I just want to ask you, like, if somebody outside of guiding, if somebody wanted to get into mushrooms, wild edibles, something like that, where did you start? How did you get into it? And, and what would you kind of recommend for folks? Learn from someone who knows. I mean, that's the biggest piece of advice. Yeah. Like, I, I learned, uh, originally learned about black morels and picking morels. That was the first thing I did. And that was uh, from one of my best friends when I was in like elementary and middle school, his dad would take us out and, uh, that's how I learned about them. And then, um, you know, and then other mushrooms I learned from research and, and then going out with other people. And then uh, once I felt versed enough where I could ident identify pretty much anything in front of me or, you know, know enough to shut aside anything I couldn't identify, then, uh, then I felt comfortable teaching others. And, uh, uh, that's the main ingredient, man, is just learn learn from somebody who knows. Yeah, that's huge. I would probably have the same recommendation. People ask me that all the time about elk hunting. Like, how do I, how do I learn it? And, you know, people think they know elk hunting because they watch a video or something. And it's like, no, you, you, it's really one of those things. You have to have like a mentor or somebody who actually knows what they're doing in real time, can show you, can correct you, um, and, and walk you through all of those steps. So I think, that's that's really good advice. Uh, last thing before I forget, I wanted to ask you about this because I know you were you were down in Florida. You guys were gator hunting, is that right? We took a morning, my son and I, and went and chased gators. That was that was wild. Did you guys get get anything? Yeah, we each shot one. Um, my son got a six, six foot two inch, and I got uh, one that was just an inch over eight feet. So a couple decent ones. Um, but that was our first time doing it, and that was really fun. I mean, something. Um, I don't, I don't know that I'll do it again, but, uh, definitely something I had to experience and I'm glad I did. Yeah. That's awesome. 
what, what was that hunt like? I mean, what did you guys, uh, are you riding in a boat and then just tracking them? What are you doing? So the regular gator season wasn't or isn't open. Um, and it wasn't open while we were down there. So you're hunting nuisance gators. Um, so you're actually buying, uh, gator farming permits or nuisance permits. Um, and oh, okay. then, so you're actually hunting contained gators that are, um, at a location where nuisance gators are, are dropped off, uh, to live out the rest of their life. Um, you know, so a large acreage with a lot of water and we were just sneaking along dikes that separate these large pockets of water and then just try to spot them sunning themselves. Um, we did it, you know, kind of early in the morning when the sun was just starting to warm up and, and then basically you, you got your guide ready with a rod and hook and uh it's gonna go from there so i i was surprised with caliber like i i was ready to rock uh i shot a two 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 four with 90 grain federal fusion so i was prepared like i i was taking a gator down but my son they had him shoot a 1022 oh really and he yeah and he actually was able to kill one uh his his went down cleaner and faster than mine it's all, it was proof that it's all about placement because when you're shooting at something the size of a thumb, you know, their brains are tiny. Um, you put a 22 in there and that gator just went stiff and belly up and mine, I think I had to shoot it two or three different times. And, uh, yeah. So, and then they use the fishing hook, they usually sink, right? Yeah. So they're on them like right away. Um, you know, and you, you can, you can choose to have them like hooked and then shoot them as they're being pulled in. Or you can shoot them as they lay and then, you know, and then they're casting immediately hooking them that way. Um, but these are relatively small bodies of water, so not that difficult for them to get a hook over top of them. And they're gigantic hooks, so. That's really funny. Well, I know you mentioned the calibers, but I know if our buddy Phil Massaro was going out there, he'd be shooting a 416 Rigby or a 404 Jeffrey. And he'd probably have like a 12000 to $15,000 rifle. <laughs> yeah, he'd have a Heim side by side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, and a, yeah, and and my son's one shotting him with a Ruger ten twenty two, and <laughs> Phil would tell me it was sacrilegious. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh man, that's awesome stuff. Well, Matt, it's been really good having you on the show. Definitely encourage people to check out the North Country Guide Service. Uh, we'll also provide links for that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, man, it's been awesome having you on. Thank you. Great talking to you, and thanks for having me. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Again, we'll have in our show notes links to Matt's guide service, and we'd encourage you as well, check us out on Facebook. We'll be sharing some of those great photos, including the 500-plus pound bear that Matt and his guiding service were able to kill. We'll have photos up on our Facebook shortly. And again, we'd encourage you to check out wilderness-warrior.com. We've got apparel. You can also sign up for our tribe to support us on Patreon and to receive cool new gear, including pint glasses and t-shirts. Again, thank you everyone for all of your support. If you get a chance, go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast leave a five-star review that really helps us out 
Until next time, men, live dangerously, be wild, and embrace the wilderness warrior way of life.